Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed. We're continuing our series now on Paul's letter to Thessalonian and it's given by Brother Matt Davis of the Mumbles Ecclesia. We're on episode two. This one's called We Give Thanks to God Always for You. Now this is a a live stream that we're actually running at christadelphianvideo.org on a Monday evening. It's not every Monday, in fact, that you'll need to keep an eye on the website to check when the next one is actually coming up. I believe we have the next one on Monday coming, the, the coming Monday. Um, so if you want to join us on Zoom, um, please let get in touch and we can pass on the Zoom details. It's predominantly for younger people, um, but it is interesting nonetheless. Um, it's a very useful study tool as well. Brother, Brother Matt is a, a very charismatic presenter and he goes into some detail and it's it's well worth listening to this podcast and leave us a message, drop us a line or leave us a voice message and we'll do our best to publish it as well. Just let us know what you think. So until next time, I hope you enjoy the podcast. God bless. Bye bye. What was the purpose of Paul's second, not first, second missionary journey? Who knows? Encourage the ecclesias already set up. Encourage the ecclesias already set up. Who went with him? Who did he select to go with him? Two particular people. Anyone remember? Silas was one who seemed to be the more mature older brother. And there was a younger one that actually picked up in, in Lystra and Derby, T- uh, Timothy. Yes, so that's uh, Acts 16, verse 1. In fact, I think we may have roughly skipped over that last time, so we should probably just uh, just just jump in there. Yeah, he came to Derby and Lystra, Acts 16, verse 1. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed but his father was a Greek. Just tuck that away because we're going to come back to that in, in a second. So we have this man, Timothy. His, um, his, uh, you know, his, his mum was a Jew. His dad was a Greek. And there he was. And he's obviously a believer in Christ. So he was selected. And then, as we say before that, before he even sets off, um, Silas was selected in chapter 15. So they start their mission to re-strengthen, to strengthen and encourage the ecclesias. How did the mission change? Daniel. No one can hide, by the way. No one can hide in my class. So if you're here, just get used to it. How did the mission change? Um, they stopped at a person's ecclesia, and then there was, like, a riot? Uh, before that, before that, before that. Do you remember they were headed um, in a particular direction? And then... Uh, well, they were going around strengthening the existing ecclesias, weren't they? And uh, they got to a point and the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said they couldn't go to certain places. They couldn't go to, um, uh, where was it? Uh, Bithynia, verse 7. Uh, and they couldn't go uh, to, there was another one, um, Asia, verse 6. So they weren't to go to Asia, they weren't to go to Bithynia. I'll show you the map just quickly, do you remember? So they got, they got up there, they went to go to Bithynia, they went to Asia, they had to keep going through the middle, and they got to the end, and then they saw that, there was a vision Paul saw of a, 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 a man of Macedonia saying, come over and see us, Macedonia being Greece here on this side, and so they make haste to go over 
and get a ship from Troas and they, they go over. But before, no ecclesias had existed there, right? So God had determined that he would use their energy to reignite the enthusiasm of the previous ecclesias, but he'd use that and further it a little bit more off now into Greece. And now you can see there's two parts of that. There's Macedonia, which is in the north, and Achaia, which is in the south. Um, and, uh, and there's Thessalonica in the middle there. Now, let me just keep going back to the recap. Okay, is everybody comfortable with this so far? Cool. So I've moved the map deliberately so you didn't know the answer to this next question. What was the first ecclesia that Paul established in Macedonia? There was a woman there that sold purple. Can you recall? Lydia, right? At what city? Philippi. So Philippi... He converted, well, he went to Philippi, he preached there first. They didn't have a synagogue. So he went to the river where they seemed to congregate to pray. He preached there. Lydia was converted. He converted others. There's other things that happened there. Um, he, um, he healed somebody. This is Acts, uh, where are we? Uh, I believe we're in back end of Acts 16 now. He heals somebody who had this uh, familiar spirit. And... Uh, they were not particularly pleased, the, uh, the masters in verse 19. So they caught him and Silas. Um, they brought him to the rulers of the city, these Jews. And you might recall that they, um, they, they, they put him in prison. And they also, um, at the back end of there, after he'd converted the, uh, the jailer in verse 37, um, it says that they, uh, they, well, Paul recalls that they were beaten. And I think that's, uh, yeah, verse 33. They took them by the same hour at night and washed this. Well, hang on, hang on. Before then, they were beaten. Where is it? I get confused. They were in the stocks. They were beaten in that chapter. Someone help me out. 23. Brilliant. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison. So they were, so you've got to imagine the Apostle Paul, Silas, beaten, which means scourged. It's not very nice basically whipped and usually you know a lot of pain really deep cuts in the back okay and then obviously when he converted the jailer you remember the story there was an earthquake and it didn't run out and the jailer was converted and, and had heard them singing their hymns and they eventually taught him the truth that very night and they got baptized he washes the stripes and so on so I know I'm, I'm uh, sort of laboring this but it's important that we get the sequence of events because that 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 beating would still be in Paul's body as he trudged up the road from Philippi to Thessalonica, right? So you, you just are amazed at this, this man. Like we'd be like in hospital probably for like 12 weeks or something, just recovering, but he's sort of legging it around the countryside. Um, no antibiotics, no healing, uh, you know, medicine or anything. It probably his garments and bandages sticking to him. It would have been awful. And yet he doesn't give up. And then he comes to Thessalonica in chapter 17 and he goes into the synagogue and he's reasoning with them for three um, for three uh, Shabbats, three Sabbaths, it says. Um, and then uh, we'll come up. I'll just mention that in a second, actually, just on that last time. You might remember uh, we looked at the three things that he preached to them, it seems, on the three Sabbaths. So in verse three, it says that he was opening and alleging, one, that Christ must need suffer, um, needs have suffered, two, and risen again from the dead, and then finally, three, this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. 
So he's talking to the Jews and he's saying the Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must die and be raised from the dead. And Jesus fulfills all that criteria. That was the, the format of his preaching. And you might remember, I have notes, but it's weird just the setup because I can't speak from my notes because they're all kind of on the computer. And if I share my screen, for some reason I can't. So I couldn't, I didn't have them down, but these were them. So I put them up there. And, and also um, a couple of other brothers, I believe, uh, you know, came on afterwards, didn't they? And I think, I think uh, your dad had a few and brother Mike Marfell had a few. Uh, did anybody else have a few more to add? Or, of uh, uh, you know, of these generally speaking, the ones uh, that come to mind? Do you have any more that kind of come to mind? Did you, did you think about this, Daniel, in the week, in the last two weeks? No, you did not, did you? That's disappointing, Daniel, but never mind. Never mind. Um, right, yeah, so we've got, you know, Christ needs have suffered. We've got Genesis 315, you know, the, the suffering uh, of the seed of the woman being bitten in the heel by the serpent. We've got Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. We've got Psalm 22 and we've got other passages in Zechariah. In Daniel 9, it's interesting, there's prophecies of Messiah being cut off and various things like that. So it's quite specific there. And risen from the dead, we again, Genesis 3.15, you know, we've got the bruising of the serpent in the head, the crushing of the flesh. Um, and then other passages in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, thy holy one won't see corruption. So there's clear indications there. There's probably lots more. Um, but the point is, is that there we have um, that Jesus is the Christ. I've got that. See also Luke 24. Shall we just dive in there? Love a good introduction, don't you? Noah? You can't wait for me to get started. I'm just keeping you on the edge of your seat. Luke 24, verse 44. Why have I got that? Oh, yes. Well, after Jesus is risen from the dead, isn't he, he appears, doesn't he? And he does some, uh, as it were, some, some Bible classes, some exposition with the disciples. And notice what he says. He said unto them, verse 44, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So the prophecies of Messiah span the whole of the Old Testament. You know, we've just got a few on the screen here. There's loads more allusions. There's loads more teachings are in relation to that. And actually on the road to Emmaus, if you just glance at verse 27, he talks to those disciples and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Because they say their heart burned within them as he expounded those scriptures. So, it, it, you know, if we, I think it's interesting for us to think about these things. If we had to preach to a Jewish community, one day you might be asked to speak to a Jew or to a Jewish community. How would you begin to try and explain your faith? Because they don't accept the New Testament. So you could only go to the Old Testament as an authority initially. And so that is the challenge. So that's what Paul was doing. Back in Acts 17, when he was preaching in Thessalonica. Now, a couple of other quick things. What happened, Daniel, um, is that some believed and um, they started a small ecclesia. Seems that there was a, a recording brother called Jason or the equivalent of a recording brother. And they were all meeting in his house. So he must have had a big room or something. It was like the ecclesial hall. And then you're absolutely right. A big riot kicked off. The Jews whipped everybody up into a frenzy. They got to the hall. They banged on the door. They eventually smashed the door down. They went looking for Paul and Silas. Couldn't find him. 
In the end, they dragged out Jason and prominent brethren and they hauled them up in front of the authorities. Um, and eventually they then had to pay uh, bail, as it were, and they were let go. But Paul wasn't in the hall on that day. So where, we don't know where he was, but basically, eventually, uh, he fled. And thankfully, he wasn't in the hall because, remember, his back was really bad. So if he was, uh, had been in the hall at that point, that would have been pretty awful. So he flees someplace else. Where does he flee? Anyone know? Berea. Berea. He does. And then eventually he gets to Athens. And then he sends Timothy back. You're right, Berea. I don't know why I haven't got Berea on the map, but Berea is there between Thessalonica and Athens. And then when he gets to Athens, he sends Timothy uh, back to see how the Thessalonians are doing. And then Paul moves on to Corinth and Timothy eventually comes back to Paul at Corinth with the report as to how this new ecclesia who'd only been in the truth for a few weeks, you know, how they were doing. Um, and uh, the report's really good and wonderful. And we'll come on to that later in our studies. So then just as they get back to Paul, it would seem pretty much almost immediately, Paul's inspired to write the, the, the epistle to the Thessalonians. And so he gives it back to, uh, back to Timothy, it seems, to go back again. So poor Timothy's like running around all over the place as a, as a messenger. And this is the epistle that Paul is inspired to send back with Timothy to the Ecclesia. And that's what we're going to look at today, chapter one. So you've got to imagine, we've got to put ourselves, there's, a, there's drama in this, isn't there? There's excitement. There's, it's, it's profound. It's like, whoa. But you've got to put yourself in the, in the shoes of these Thessalonians. So who here has been baptised for under a year? Anyone? Nobody. People who have been baptised longer than years and people not baptised yet. Am I right? Okay. So let's imagine you get baptised. Okay. You commit to Christ. Um, and you need some encouragement, right? Because... You're thinking, or oh, I need some exhortation, I need some encouragement. Well, and if we had a larger class with, you know, a few people I know who've got COVID and stuff, if they were here, they might say, yeah, I've only been baptised under a year, under a couple of years. Um, well, this is the sort of epistle I would suggest to a young brother, a young sister, would be useful for them to study, to, to pick up and to be encouraged by, because this is for people who are young in the truth. This epistle is going to encourage them and, uh, and you'll see why. I mean, obviously, in no way are we persecuted like the Thessalonians, but uh, we could be, and some of us are in other parts of the world, um, and we still might be eventually. And so if we face persecution at some stage, this, uh, these chapters might be really helpful to us as well, as well as if we're young in the truth. But even if we're not young in the truth, even if we've been baptized for many years, all scriptures by given, by, given by inspiration and is profitable for us. So we open it together, don't we, to look at uh, and, to, and to learn from the, uh, the, the Thessalonians. So we're going to divide the book into, into kind of two parts, really. Um, part one, we're going to be looking at over the next few, uh, few weeks. Um, and we're going to be looking at chapter one, two and three. And really, that section is all about thankfulness for the Thessalonian ecclesia. Um, so I can see some of you writing some notes. These are quite handy to kind of put in a little box at the top of your, you know, where it sort of says the first epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Thessalonians, um, up there in a box or something, useful to have up there. Because then part two in chapters four and five is the exhortation to walk in holiness. And as I say, if we're young in the truth, 
there's some real juicy gems in here that will be uh, helpful to us as we as we begin our walk. Um, and if not, and we've been in the truth a while, to remind us of what we should be being like. Now tonight, that was my introduction. That was pretty bad, wasn't it? That was a pretty long introduction. Well, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe. Um, tonight, we're going to be getting into the first chapter, these first 10 verses. So I'm going to get come in. So we're going to look at verses 1, 3. Uh, one to three initially. The way I kind of tend to work is um, is slowly and methodically because every word has been inspired by God, right? And there's meaning and weight to every single word that we come across. So even though it's the Apostle Paul writing, holy men of God spake as they were moved and driven by God's Holy Spirit, right? So Paul, by the Spirit, is writing these things. So we've got to appreciate that and pay attention to it, haven't we? Because it's not Paul talking, it's not Paul's opinion, it's, uh, it might be a, a true reflection of what he thought, but the words themselves have been chosen and designed and penned down uh, through the Spirit of God. And so we, we, we hold them in high esteem, don't we? So what I tend to do, and I do this when we do our readings at home with the kids, is look, you know, we go through it steadily and we try and read it and try and say, well, okay, well, what is that really, what is that saying to us? Let's just look at verses one to three again. So we've got Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. Now, Silvanus and Timotheus are the Latin names for Silas, Silas and Timothy, right? Which shouldn't be a surprise. So this is, uh, you know, penned, it would seem, by Paul, but it's Silas and Timotheus are with, with him. Unto the ecclesia, the called out ones. Why do we say ecclesia? I think it's a, a Christadelphian tradition, I think because Brother Thomas, or it might have been Brother Roberts, I haven't got the quote. Um, you know, we wanted to distinguish ourselves early on from the churches, didn't we? And the churches and their false teachings, you know, and also the idea that, um, you know, the church is like the building. And we know that the word actually means uh, congregation or, or called out ones. It's a, so when we um, say... Uh, church often you know Christadelphians will change it to ecclesia I think rightly so um, unto the ecclesia of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and you think of the turmoil that Paul left them in and here we have him um, praying as it were and wishing for peace and love to be with them Notice also that he says they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, their loaded expressions, we'll perhaps have a look at those um, and the meaning of those as we go through. But they're in a relationship with God. They're in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, he says, give, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And so, again, we have quite an interesting thing there, don't we? We... Remember, Timothy came back to Paul. Paul didn't know what happened. And he says that they're faithful. They're, they're holding firm, even though they've been suffering great persecution by these Jews. And so we realize that Paul remembers them in his prayers and he thanks God for them. You know, he realizes this is a work of God and he's thankful to God. Remember, it was the it was God who called Paul over there in the first place. Right through the, the vision of the Macedonian man. So thanks be to God for that. But if we reflect to our, our, on ourselves as well, we think, 
When was the last time you prayed and thanked God for your brothers and sisters, for the example of an ecclesia you might have visited or, you know, uh, or, or of your ecclesia generally? You know, do we appreciate, are we grateful that we have brothers and sisters of like precious faith who are in Christ, who are in the Father, who are trying hard to do the things of God and are helping us as a community? Because we need to appreciate each other. We need to put value on each other because God values our ecclesia and God values our brothers and sisters. So we need to try and get in that mindset. You know, I think I hear a lot of negativity sometimes. Oh, you know, just a bit drab at my meeting, you know. Well, no, we've got to be appreciative. These are brothers and sisters. God's called them out. And we need to have that mindset, positive mindset. Now, verse three, remembering without ceasing. I'm going to spend a bit of time on this. Your... Work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So we've got three things there. Did you notice that? What's the first one? What did, what did Paul remember? Your work of faith. Second one, labor of love. Third one, patience of hope, right? So this is what I'm saying, careful Bible reading, right? So now we've got these three things. Okay, wonder what work of faith is and labor of love is and patience of hope is. So we've got them there on the screen. They've got a work of faith, a labor of love and a patience of hope. Now the word, the words are interesting. Um, so I looked them up. Um, I think these are from Strong's. Or, or, uh, there's, a lot, there's a fantastic uh, website I use called Blue Letter Bible. If you've not come across that, should totally check it out because basically you can click on the words and you get loads of uh, interesting facts about those words and where they're used in scripture as well. So you can check out the divine use of them. But roughly sort of summarizing, um, we've got there the work, which means an act, deed or thing done. OK, so they've done something and Paul's remembering this thing that they've done, this act. And this is an act of faith. And it means their act of belief. And then we see that they have this labor of love. And the word labor, it really means like to toil to the point of exhaustion, right? There's this effort that they've been putting in. And um, they have this effort, this labor of love. And it's, it's not like some sort of emotional love. We know this agape love, if you've not studied that definitely study agape love because it is this idea of a love that's self-sacrificial a love of choice it's not kind of like this pagan idea those that were at the youth weekend you might remember we were talking about that pagan idea of like being unable to help it because our emotions bear us along this is not that kind of love this is a this is not a love based in human emotion this is love based on considered choice and a reflection of thankfulness and gratitude that's compelling them to do something because of an understanding of what God has done. And so this is a gape love, self-sacrificial love, um, which they have been toiling in. They've been exhausting themselves in self-sacrificial love. And finally, then we've got the patience, the steadfastness, cons constant endurance of hope. And the word hope is elpis, as in elpis Israel, the hope of Israel. But they've got this hope. And so they're steadfast. They're unwavering. There is no uh, backing down with these people. 
They're, they're constant in their endurance. Now, these attributes, I would suggest to you, are things that all true uh, followers of Christ will exhibit. So we appreciate, don't we, that, that you know, we are saved by faith. We're not saved by works, but you also can't really, as James points out in his inspired epistle, you can't really separate the two. Because although you're saved, you're not saved because you can do anything to, for God and God therefore will reward you because of your works. You're saved because God has designed the system and God's designed it on the basis of faith so that he would be glorified. So faith is what saves us. But once we appreciate that, you can't have faith without works because your faith will be reflected in something that in things that you do. And so the two are intrinsically linked. But the priority here is you, you have to appreciate in humility, you, you don't deserve it, if, as, it as, as it will. God's done this in, in his grace, in his love. And so we have to get that, that straight. But here we have, you see, the work of faith. We have the two together. And then once you've done that, once you've committed to Christ, and obviously the first work of faith, obviously you believe, but like the jailer, you are baptised. Okay, so that's a, a work, as it were. That's a reflection back, like you appreciate what God's done. So you want to want to follow through and commit. And we know that that, that is the through baptism. And that carries on. You know, you don't just sort of go, oh, well, I, I intellectually, I believe. And therefore, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. And that isn't how it works. You haven't really got true faith then, have you, if you're, if you're doing that? So you, you've got your work of faith. And then you labor, you, you toil in self-sacrificial love. Why? Because you appreciate Christ has died for you. And so you also try and toil and labor in self-sacrificial love in how you treat your brothers and sisters. And finally, you stay strong. You stay steadfast. You don't let things knock you off course because you have this true expectation. And so it's a wonderful little section there in, in verse three that this is what Paul appreciated about this ecclesia, about these faithful brothers and sisters, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Now, just uh, keep a hand there if you're making notes, because faith, hope, and love should remind you of something. It should remind you, I believe, of, of, of where they come together in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So let's just flick over there, shall we? Just briefly. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, we've got, we can't go through all the content, context here. But basically, we, we get them together and we're, we're exhorted about which one of these is the greatest. So, um, Daniel, could you read us verse 13 uh, of 1 Corinthians 13, please? Nice and loud with your mask off so that you can hear online, please. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Wonderful. And uh, why do we think that the greatest, oh, by the way, the word charity is love. Okay, agape. So here we've got the three, they're, they're abiding now, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why do we think love is the greatest of those three? Anyone got any ideas? It's more challenging to the other two without love. More challenging to the other two without love, okay. Interesting. That could be right. Anyone got any other thoughts? 
Or no? Only one in the kingdom. I think that's probably right because when the kingdom comes and Christ changes our vile bodies to make them like his glorious body, our faith will be realized, our hope will be realized, but love will continue forward. You know, we'll continue to reap the benefits of Christ's love and, um, and we also will, will serve. So you're absolutely right. I think that love continues on into the kingdom. Um, just a thought there. There's a lot more we could say about 1 Corinthians 13, but it's not obviously our subject today. But the thing is, is when you kick into chapter 14, follow after love, it says there. You know, this is what we should be thinking about, self-sacrificial love, a love based on our knowledge of the scriptures and on the, the love we have for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So flick back again to Thessalonians. How are we doing for time? Not too bad. Does anyone feel that's okay at the moment? Like, so we've got these things. Um, and um, just to sort of summarize, I think where the context of Thessalonians, really what we're talking about here is their commitment based on faith of baptism. That was their initial kind of work of, of faith. And then their label of, labor of love is their life of service in the truth. This continuing on, they're looking after each other. And then the patience of hope is this idea of the development of a character dependent on God that won't waver from that hope that they've got. And um, we're going to look at it a little bit later, but perhaps we could just look at verse nine, because my suggestion is, is that these three phrases, if you want to put a ring around them, they kind of correlate to another three phrases that we come, we've read in, in, in verse nine and 10. So I'm just going to read those. It says, for they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven and so it seems that there's these three things that they've done um, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute he's talking about the fame that that, that all the ecclesias um kind of they had in all of the ecclesias because all the ecclesias heard of what happened the massive riot outside the ecclesial hall and how Paul had to run down the road to Berea and and that that you know that spread around the ecclesial family um and um and so he's talking about that and he says look you know you everybody's heard about how you turn to God the work of faith how you serve the living and true God your labor of love in serving and your patience of hope, how you're patient, how you hope for that hope, how you wait for his son. And so it's just a, can't speak tonight, just a suggestion that those correlate together, right, in the context of Thessalonica. I think it's quite beautiful, really, when we look at that. We'll look at those a little bit later on um, in, a, in a moment, in a more depth, verse 9 and 10. So... I'm going to keep cracking on. Is that okay? Everyone okay with that? All right. So what was this hope that they had, this elpis that they had? It's quite interesting when you go through the epistle, just to kind of think about this. So when you actually, um, we'll see this in, the, in our studies, but just um, look at verse 10. We've already touched on it, that they were hoping really for, to wait. They're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So they're they're waiting for that, aren't they? And then in chapter four and verse 16, um, they, were, they were waiting for, for, you know, basically Christ um, to come. And, and when uh, the sins had 
I don't know, see that forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath is come unto them to the uttermost. So they're waiting for this wrath that's going to come on the Jews. We'll look at that next week, God willing. So that's part of the, the thing that they're waiting for. And then in chapter three and verse 13. So he, he talks there about the end that the Lord may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. So they're waiting for that, even our father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's their hope. And then if we look at um, uh, verse uh, chapter four, verse 14, we have that famous passage about the resurrection and how Christ will bring again those that, that sleep. We're going to look at that um, in a few weeks, God willing. Um, we look at chapter five and verse 23, and we've got there, um, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you jump up to that second one, chapter four, verse 16 is still also valid because they're waiting for the Lord to descend with the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. All of those things um, are wonderful. They're the hope that Christadelphians have, aren't they? They are hope. Um, so we share that clearly with the Thessalonians. Now, there's something I want you to notice here in verse four. We've already pointed out that the epistle starts and it says, the Thessalonians, the ecclesia of the Thessalonians, which are in God and the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that family relationship, okay, with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the title of God the Father is there at the end of verse one. And so we have this idea um, of the family, right? So we have God the Father. And then notice um, what happens here, because in verse four, knowing brethren, beloved, your election of God. And elsewhere we get the, I think it's in Ephesians, we get this analogy really emphasized to us of Christ being the, the head of the family, being given that headship by the father, and so he's like the, the firstborn of the family, now in, in, in charge of the, of the household. And we are the sons of God, as it were, in that household. So we are all brothers together. The Apostle Paul is a brother. The Thessalonians are brethren. We are brethren and sisters. And when we say brethren, by the way, it's, it's Adelphos. It, it can be uh, female and male, right? But So it's brethren. It's just all of those people, siblings, if you like, in connection, in family relationship with God. And we can see, we're not going to go through them, you'll be pleased to know, how many times in Thessalonians this is emphasised. We are brethren, we are family, brothers and sisters, Adelphos in Christ. And we're going to, God willing, study 2 Thessalonians as well. You can see it's less so there, but still nonetheless prevalent in 2 Thessalonians. And this is the wonder, I think, of the divine design of the family, because what we're being taught here is that we are like the children in the family, right? And you can see this in loads of passages on, on, on we've got three on the screen. We could spend a whole probably couple of couple of sessions just looking at, at the idea of being brothers and sisters of Christ. You know, but just up there, you know, you've got 1 John 3, behold, what manner of love the Father, God, hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so we appreciate that, that in the design of the family, 
God has, as it were, um, created a framework that we can experience his love and, 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 and basically role model, role play, if you like, in a much smaller degree, the relationships that he desires us to understand and appreciate that he has produced for us. And so those of us eventually, I know you're a bit young, but when you, if you do, if you are blessed, if the Lord reigns away and you're blessed as being a father, you'll begin to understand a little bit of what it's like to be, um, you know, a, a small part of, of, of what it must be like to be God the Father, right? Because it's a, a small cameo example of what the wonder of the Almighty wants us to appreciate. That's why he designed Adam and Eve and Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and so on and so forth. For further information, go and see that youth group that we did on Saturday. But, you know, you just boggle at this, that God is, you know, God has designed this for us to appreciate. Now, we've all, we're all children, as it were. We've all grown up in households and we appreciate that, that the children don't run the show, do they? The children follow the parents, and so that's our position in the house. It's not us, up to us to start charging around, telling everyone how things should be done. It's not up to us to, uh, you know, tell God how he should run his household. No, we are to become, as Jesus says, like little children and learn and follow the master's ways. And so that's the order of things. And so Christ becomes the firstborn of many brethren in Romans. And we know we're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're in that family. Um, of, 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 of Abraham through faith in Galatians 3. So let me just ask you another question. Well, I well there's a couple of things, actually. Have I got it in here? Uh, yeah, I'll actually, we'll do with it later. Just notice as well there in verse 4. So he calls them brethren. He says, knowing brethren, beloved, your election of God. Anyone know what that means? Choosing. Choosing. Yeah, that's good. Um, it's on the screen, so really, you know, no one's got any excuse. <laughs> um, yeah, it means election, or really you could say selection, right? Um, the act of picking out or choosing selection, okay? So remember in the context of the Thessalonians, right? They saw the vision of the Macedonian man saying, come on over. Like God literally called them over and, and, and uh, selected them. But it's, none the, the, it's not different in a sense for us. Like God knows who he wants to call to be in his kingdom. He knows that. You and me, we've all been blessed with that opportunity. And God's known that from time immemorial. Like he's designed it. How do I know that? Let's just flick over to just remind ourselves a couple of principles. Let's just go to Romans 9. Um, we'll do Romans 9, verse uh, 10 to 13. Um, do you read? Is it Merrick? What's your name? Joseph. Joseph, sorry, brain gone crazy. Joseph, do you read? Would you be willing to read? All right, let's do it. Romans 9, verse 10 to 13. Nice and clear. Gives me a chance to have a drink. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, 
For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the earth might stand, not of works, but of him that called. Right. So we're diving into the context again. And the context here is um, the Apostle Paul is talking about um, Sarah, right? And in, um, hang on, what, let me have a look. Um, yeah. No, Rebecca, sorry, my brain. So he's talking about Rebecca and Isaac. And what did they have? They had two sons, didn't they? Jacob and Esau. Now, what's fascinating about this passage is Paul is talking about this exact same principle of calling and election and selection, okay, this principle. And he's, he's saying in verse nine, look, you know, there's this word of promise that Sarah shall have a son. In other words, the promised seed. Sarah's going to have the promised seed. And he says, look, basically, um, Isaac was chosen um, before they were even born. It says in verse 12, the elder shall serve the younger. In verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God knew which one he wanted before they were even born. And so he selected them. And why did he select them? It says, so that God, according to election, same word, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. In other words, this is by God's design. God chooses, not us. God selects who will um, have a part in his kingdom and who he will expose the gospel to, not us. Does that make sense? Because I think sometimes we like to think now, and I hear this sometimes, and it's, it is a view, and, you know, if you hold this view, you know, have, you know I'm not going to fall out with you, but um, it, is, it is considered sometimes that, you know, if there's somebody on the planet, right, who wants to know about God and would be a great Christadelphian, that somehow God would give them the truth and expose them to the gospel. But I think that might be the kind of the wrong way around a little bit, because that's not a scriptural concept. God chooses who he wants to expose to the gospel. And that is how it, how calling happens. It's not up to that person to, 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 to kind of figure this out. It's God who selects. And that's the whole point of what's being said here. And sometimes we can say, well, that's not fair. What about, you know, that person in, 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 you know, in the 600 AD in Africa, like how are they supposed to know about, you know, the Bible? Well, that's not up to us, is it, right? The father, the head of the family, he said that this is how it works. He calls who he wants. And so it might seem unfair on a human level, but really all we deserve is death, isn't it? And it's in God's love and mercy that he selects anybody. Um, and so we are privileged in that sense. And so that's how I understand it anyway, because we have this principle that God calls, that God selects. It's not of man. It's not up to us. It's up to God. And then if you actually flick on to chapter 11 and verses 1 to 6, we know from Ephesians 2 as well, this is of God's grace. Um, the same thing is there. I say then, I'll just read it. Hath God cast away his people? Have I got this chapter right? I hope I have. For I am, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not? I've got the wrong, I'm sure I've got the wrong chapter here. Where's that one that talks about this? What? This is terrible. I'm usually much better than this. I do apologize, everyone. Can anyone help me out? Where does it say um, for whom he 
did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. I can recount it from my head, but I can't, I can't see it. I think I'm an, I'm, I meant that one. Oh, so it, was it the right one? 829. Let's have a look at that. Is it definitely right? 11 verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So, yes, I mean, the context there is correct, because God is, God is selecting Israel, so it's the theme carries on, but it isn't what I had in mind. So 8 verse what, 29? Oh, look at this. Do you want to come do the class? This is great news. Yeah, so look in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What's that saying? So we know that all things work together for good. For them that love God and for them who are called according to whose purpose? Our purpose? No, his purpose. So God is sovereign. God is in control. And then verse 30, moreover, bit of detail, whom he did predestinate, means he's sort of set out the future for, he selected them, them he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, so he's, he's made them righteous again by this calling, by their commitment to him, and whom he justified, them he also glorified, the principle is that God is in control, and then verse 31 it says, what shall we say then to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? God's called you. God's called me. He wants us to be in his kingdom. That's amazing. He's caused you to be born in a Christadelphian family. He might have caused you to come to some Christadelphian talks or lectures, but God wants you in here. That's how, he, that's how his angels work. The angel called Paul across to Macedonia. Now, we don't have evidence of that. We don't know how the angels are working now, but we believe that it's the same, it's the same thing, that God is calling He's selecting and predestinating people that he wants to, to have the exposure to the gospel of. And so we've got, you know, a ton of verses on the screen um, around this idea of, of the elect or the selected people um, all on the screen. I won't go through them. But the point here is, is that God is selecting and calling a particular set of people. He calls out a people for his name, it says in, in Acts 15. Now, how does God do this? This is an important question. I mean, I'm talking to, you know, you guys as young people, because I think it's really important that we emphasize these foundation principles. Here's a, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of JT, right? He does have a good beard as well. But not only that, um, he says some remarkable things in his writings. It's things that, frankly, I don't think we bettered as a community in, in terms of explaining. So here's one. It may be remarked here that the election of scripture has reference to the purpose of God in relation to the constitution of the kingdom. He has elected its territory. He has elected the nation to inhabit it forever. He has elected the king to rule over it, and he has select, elected its saints to assist him in the administration of its affairs. The election in all these cases has been of him that calleth. God elects saints for his kingdom, not by foregone conclusions, which are irreversible, but men are elect through sanctification of spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we go back to the idea then that, yes, God has selected you to understand 
the gospel, but it's up to you what you do with that. Will you respond? Will you be baptized? Will you, will you do the labor of love and have the endurance of your, of your hope? But still, it's in God's control. And so those of us who appreciate this, you know, we, we're so thankful. We thank God that we have been selected and elected to appreciate these things. So how does God call us? Um, it's through this idea of the gospel. Just flick back to 1 uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Now, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I've kind of alluded to this already. And those of you that um, were at Climatic will know that we, we looked at this in depth, like how God calls somebody. But just notice in Thessalonians here um, how it works. So Thessalonians 1 verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only. So knowing, brethren, beloved, your selection of God for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. We're not quite sure what that power and Holy Spirit was. I mean, in the sense of was there some signs, was some miracles done um, in Thessalonica? We don't know, but we do know the Holy Spirit was definitely at work because of that vision that Paul had of the Macedonian man that called them over. And the Holy Spirit said, don't go north, don't go south, come across to Macedonia. So the Holy Spirit was at work in power. Uh, but it says here, it happened in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for our sake. And, you know, there's a hint there, his back bleeding and buckled and, you know, he, he, they knew what kind of a man he was. And we're going to find out later that he worked for a living when he was with them. It wasn't like he was just sort of laying on his, laying, laying on his, his, his medical bed. He was working as well. He, he was at least there for at least three Shabbats, possibly a bit longer, maybe a couple of months. But he was working while he was there. He was getting money to, to, to eat and stuff. And that's the kind of man that he was. And he's saying here, it would seem that something along those lines was connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. So God was in control of this. There was miraculous activity at work. But the point I'm trying to make here is verse five. How were they selected by God? It was through the gospel. And when we actually go through this principle, you remember it well, Mark 16, verse 16, or verse 15 says, um, go ye all into the world, says Jesus, and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. We all know that, right, from our proofs. So the gospel is what saves Okay, a response to that gospel is what saves, um, but the message of the gospel is what's um, one verse 16. What does Romans 1 verse 16 start with? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Right. Not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it saves us. It's the power of God. It's God's mechanism by which he saves and so if you've been brought up in, in, a, in a Christadelphian household and you understand the gospel, you have this opportunity to be saved of God. In, Rome, in Corinthians 15, it makes it really clear the gospel by which also ye are saved. I don't have to labor it anymore, right? So how that's how God does it. He exposes some of us to the gospel, some of humanity, and it's up to them how they respond but it's up to him who he selects to be chosen to have that. And not everybody has it, young people. So let's really appreciate the preciousness of that. Now, why is it? 
that God works like that? Why doesn't God, like, I don't know, beam around the world somehow the gospel message and give everybody the choice so that everybody and anybody could believe? Well, I believe the answer to that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because we would like to think that, you know, as a human, we'd like, we'd be like, well, that would be fair then, wouldn't it, right? If every baby, I don't know, as soon as they were born, I don't know, were given a little booklet or something with the gospel on it, up to you whether you agree or disagree, little baby, at least you've had the chance, right? It doesn't work like that, does it? Many people live their lives and they never hear about the gospel. They never understand the Bible. Even so-called Christians, they never really appreciate the gospel. They're never baptized uh, or no, never come close to valid baptism because they don't appreciate the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Um, Noah, can you read 26 to 29? Yes. <clears throat> you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised have God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That's no flesh to glory in his presence. I think that last bit there is the key thing, right? God hasn't chosen everybody, he hasn't chosen mighty people, he's chosen the weak things. Um, he's chosen the people like the Thessalonians, right, who were being beaten and dragged before the authorities, you know, these miserable people, if you like, in, in Thessalonica. But he's chosen those people and selected and elected those. Why? Because I'm talking about this principle, because it's all to do with God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that God is supreme, not man. No flesh should glory in his presence. None of us, you know, none of us deserve it, frankly, because we all sin. We all have the flesh. We have those impulses to sin. We all deserve death and most of humanity get it. But God in his love and his wisdom and his mercy has chosen to, to call out a few of us and select us to have this opportunity of salvation. And so we're so thankful, aren't we, for that? And we don't glory in it. It's not like we're like, ha ha, are we good? No, we praise God and we thank God because no flesh should glory in his presence. It's his workmanship, not ours. So, oh, I'm going to go back. Young people who, were, who, were, who, who went to climatic. What are the two halves of the gospel? Two key themes in the gospel. Kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ, right? Excellent. Well done. I'm glad someone was listening to some of my classes at one point. Acts chapter 8, 12 makes it super clear. So Philip's preaching, right? The things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, the two halves of the gospel. Okay? So a lot of Christians, um, they will have stuff around Jesus Christ or Christians in inverted commas, right? They'll have, they'll believe, we believe in Jesus, you know? And um, they even get that wrong because they believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity and um, really they have a really strange understanding of the atonement. And so they, they don't quite have that correct. But the point is, even if they have that, and even if they have it incorrect, often they miss out so anything to do with the kingdom. So if you're in a conversation with a Christian, a good place to start is to say, well, what's your understanding of the gospel? 
and then listen to what they say and say, do you know anything about the kingdom? Because that's actually a key part of the gospel, Acts 8, 12. So perhaps we can start with the kingdom and let's just discuss that and get some, get some momentum going. And then we need to look at the king of the kingdom, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might recall that these two things we could summarize. And, and, and as Christadelphians, we have a very unique understanding of both of these, because the things concerning the kingdom of God are, is all to do with the principles that we call God manifestation. In other words, how God is going to fill the earth with people that reflect his character in the kingdom. Right. That's the, the hope that we're all looking forward to, the, the, where his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the second part of the gospel, the, and the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that is all about how he's going to do that in a race which is sinful and worthy of complete and utter destruction. And that's the, prince, that's the doctrine of the atonement. So we have God manifestation and the atonement. And Christadelphians have a very different understanding of those two key parts of the gospel. And once we understand those things, we can be baptized. So I often ask young people, I won't embarrass you all here, what do you need to know to be baptized? And uh, they're all a bit confused. And people usually go, oh, we need to know the Bible, Uncle Matt. And I'm like, oh, really? So you need to know the whole Bible? Oh, great. Well, good luck with that, because I definitely, uh, my baptism is not valid then, is it? No, no. What we need to understand is the gospel. Now, just so happens that Christadelphians believe they've got the gospel. We've got the truth of the gospel that saves. And it's not changed in 160, 170 years since our community was, uh, was, was born, if you like. We've summarized it in our statement of faith. I brought a box in when I first came in because I had some left over that I wanted to give everyone an opportunity. Where did I put it? Ah, excellent. If anybody would like a, um, our statement of faith, because I, I don't think it gets enough airtime, if you like, because it's, it, it's it could, frankly, the wording could be better. I'd admit it. Like I'm not, you know, wedded to the wording. What I think it does a good job of is explain the meaning of what we understand the gospel is, right? So we've got the statement of faith. There's also a more elaborate one, the declaration of the truth as revealed in the Bible. Does anyone want one of these? Have you got one? No? You've got, you've got yours? There's one. You do you want one? All right, one for you. Anyone else? You've got, you've got one, got one, got one, you got it? Go on, excellent, cool. So um, I will try and bring them next week as well. For anyone online who would like one, just uh, kind of call me next week and, and I'll, I'll definitely give you one. Really good because just, out of, just to show you very quickly how we model our faith, you know, the first one to 16 uh, kind of areas are all about um, the, the things concerning Jesus and a couple of foundational principles, right? And then you read at clause 17 that the gospel consists of the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, which we've just looked at. And then verse, uh, the, the 18th clause says that the things of the kingdom of God are the facts testified concerning the kingdom of God and so on and so forth uh, are definable in the next kind of half of the of the document, right? So our statement of faith is split into those two halves. And if you've got the declaration of the truth, which is, I don't even know, I think it's Brother Roberts who put this together. You'll see the same thing is in the contents page, the things concerning the kingdom of God and those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the contents, that's how they're split up there. And that goes back over a hundred years. So that's how we understand the gospel. And that's what it means to be a Christadelphian. You know, when we, um, when we look at the word Christadelphian, I've covered this off with some of you before. 
but it isn't the title, it isn't the brand name of a social club. It is a scripturally defined title which has scripturally defined criteria. And the, the Colossians is, is a perfect example of that. In fact, let's just have a quick look and just remind ourselves, and then we'll just uh, finalize the end of our chapter together. But I just really think it's important because these are the things that are, are, are packed away in this opening chapter to the Thessalonians. Remember, he called them brethren, right? And that's there as well in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And that is um, the, the word uh, Adelphos, brethren, and Christos, Christ. And that's where the name of our community comes from, Christadelphians, brethren in Christ. But as I say, that isn't just a brand name that we put on a logo and shove on a website and stick on a, the side of a hall. And then any old person can say that they're a Christadelphian, because even though that might happen in some cases, frankly, if we're doing our job rightly, we will understand who our brethren are because it's defined for us in scripture. So if you actually look here, for example, who are these brethren in Christ? Or look at the back end of verse five, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So these are people that believe the gospel, the gospel that was preached to them. And uh, you can go through that they have an understanding and, uh, and this idea of the gospel is, again, uh, peppered throughout the book of Colossians. So these are people who believe the gospel. So if you if you meet someone or if I, let's change it around, if I meet someone and they say, hi, I'm a Christadelphian, but I don't go along with what Christadelphians believe. I don't really believe half the things in the statement of faith. Well, frankly, you have a different understanding of the gospel to me. So how can you? Either I'm not a Christadelphian or you're not a Christadelphian because we can't both be Christadelphians because we have a different understanding of the gospel. So we need to work that out. We've got a problem here, right? And, and I think, you know, we, we do need to consider this as we, as we go forward. You know, we need to recognize who our true brethren are because we have obligations of agape love to them. But they're also false brethren. And so we have to, we have to think that out. And I know you're young in the truth. But your faith will be tested. You will be challenged as time goes on. And we have to sometimes weigh these things up and figure out, um, you know, who we should really be having a strong relationship with um, and who are, who are true Christadelphians. You know, it says in Revelation, um, in one of the epistles, that they, tr they tried those that said they were Jews and were not in one ecclesia. can't remember which one that was. Is it Sardis? No. Anyone remember? Laodicea? No, definitely not. They tried, they, they tried, they tested to see whether someone was a true Jew. And, and I think this sense of that. Yeah, it's uh, Smyrna, Revelation 2, verse 9. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not of the synagogue of Satan. And then he says, you're not going to get any other... Uh, trouble and to, you know basically they had to they had to suffer they had to they had to contend for the faith they they had they they had to test uh, and try these people as it were so you know these are these are challenges which will come up now look brother thomas says this the characteristic this isn't matt davies talking right this is this is our community since for 100 plus years ago that we've understood this i don't see why it's a confusing thing at the moment it shouldn't be anyway the characteristic of a true Christadelphian is the obedience of faith and a walk worthy of God. In other words, 
He first understands the things of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Brother Thomas understood it. Of course he did. We've always understood it as a community. That's the hallmark of a Christadelphian. They believe the gospel, right? That's the bare minimum. And then he says, secondly, he believes in what, what he understands and loves what he believes above every other thing. Thirdly, his faith working by love causes him to be immersed into the divine name. Fourthly, he walks in the truth and is careful to do nothing to its injury. And fifthly, he will, he will not fellowship those who do not so believe and do. This is the Christadelphian theory and practice which separates us. Now, this is insightful. Personally, I might gain by a less rigid and exclusive order of things, but then the truth would suffer. Therefore, I repudiate it. And this is at the start of the community. You know, Brother Thomas is trying to grow the community. And he's like, you know what? We could just like not have so many doctrines. You know, we could just dampen down that part of the gospel, dampen down that, widen the opportunity. Just say we believe in Jesus and then everybody could come in. But he says, no, 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 because that the truth would suffer. In fact, it wouldn't be loving to do that because the gospel is what saves. So there we go. Um, they were examples. Let's just flick back. We'll just wind up now. Um, I hope you found that, that interesting. Happy to take any questions in a minute, but let's just uh, wind up. These are important principles. So it says they were in samples or examples. And you see that in verse 7. Examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith in, to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. So Paul's saying like everyone was thrilled by your baptisms, by your commitment to Christ. And that's what happens now. You know, someone gets baptized and all the ecclesias are thrilled. And, uh, you, you know, you, you, get, you get people sending lovely messages and books and cars to say thank you and to encourage you because, you know, when you're baptized, it's wonderful. But even more so when someone's baptized in, in, under persecution, you know, how thankful we are with our Iranian brothers and sisters. We're amazed that God's called them to the truth in that, their persecution. If anyone converts from Islam, it's no joke, right, in Islam. They, they're technically infidels and they should be beheaded, I think, under Shia law. So it's, it's, it's no big deal. And we are, we are, their fame spreads abroad when that kind of thing happens. And so here we have this idea of them being examples. Um, I won't go through these, but in a sense, what's an example? It's like you're an example. You're a, you're a, you're a pattern. You're something to be replicated in other things and and their their fame went through all these ecclesias that were around that area and it says finally i'll just um i'll just uh, look at this I, I showed you this didn't i that that they turned to god and then if we go backwards that references is how it seems to be their work of faith they serve the living and the true god which is their labor of love and they wait for his son which is their patience of hope now last week i mistakenly uh made a mistake right? Because I don't deliberately make mistakes. Um, just um, quickly, I just want to deal with this, uh, as I say, and then we will wind up. Acts 17, just flick back to Acts 17. Remember, he went into the synagogue and he preached. So he's in a synagogue, but then at the end of that sort of thing, it says, um, verse four, some of them believed. Um, so these, some of the Jews believed, um, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. And I said, oh, they must be Jewish Greeks. Now, I don't think that's actually correct. I've done a bit of work on this this uh, last couple of weeks, because the word Greeks there 
is the word hellion in Greek, and it's translated Greek 20 times, but Gentile seven times. And when you actually go through um, how it's used in the Acts, it seems to always imply that uh, the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews, right? So did you, do you remember we, we talked about Timothy? It said his, his mother was a Jewess, but his father was a Greek. Now, it might have been an actual Greek, but the point is he wasn't a, a Jew. And so when you go through this, like Acts 14, 1, it talks about both of the Jews and also of the Greeks. Um, and then 16, verse 1, then they came, oh, we've done that one. That's the one of Timothy. And then 18, verse 4, let's just have a quick look at this one. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And then verse 17 explains who they were. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him. So we've got the Jews and the Greeks, but they seem to be the, these Gentiles um, that, are, that, are, that are, are being referred to. Chapter 19, verse 10, they continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And then 2021 says, uh, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God. And then finally, 21 verse 28 says, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place and, and further brought Greeks also into the temple. So it's the Jews and the Greeks. So when we read the Greeks, so when we flick back there to Acts 17, it would seem that, that, that the Greeks, the Gentiles of the city heard about the preaching, heard the preaching, and these were devout. The word devout means worshipping. So they were seeking the truth. They wouldn't have been able to go into, um, into the temple, but they, they could uh, join into synagogue worship, it seems. And so they were there. And so they were converted. It relates to the Gentiles. They turned from idols, as we read in, in there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and they turned to the living God. And the word turned, it kind of means like to change direction. So these Greeks, it seems, um, they were idol worshippers. Remember I told you Thessalonica was at the base of Mount Olympus, full of pagan gods and all the immorality that went alongside that pagan religion. It was basically like what we have today, which is basically you could do whatever you want. You just adopt a god that kind of basically reflected what your fleshly lusts wanted to achieve. And then you'd say, you're going to go worship that God for a bit. Isn't that great? Right? So that was the pagan religions of the day. Um, we shall say no more because we are young and uh, we don't need to emphasize that. But it's basically pure filth in Thessalonica. They were on the Aegean way. They had merchants coming and going. They had, they had wealth and amphitheaters and these temples with all sorts of horrible things going on inside them, and they had uh, access to all of that. And these people heard the gospel and they turned away from it. They turned to the living God. Now, I was going to show you quite a few verses around that, but time has gone. But it's very interesting that Paul's message, for example, when he preaches, remember he says, uh, I was, uh, where is he? He's in Athens. And he says, you know, you're all too superstitious. You know, I've, I wouldn't pass this statue to the unknown God. He says, I'm going to declare the unknown God to you is the living God. And he calls them all to follow the living God. That's what he's trying to say. Your pagan gods are not really gods at all. 
It's interesting in Deuteronomy. In fact, let's just do this Deuteronomy one quick. Just have a look at Deuteronomy chapter five, because this is the first time that phrase is from what I can tell. The living God crops up. Deuteronomy chapter five. Um, and we're going to look at the context. So verse seven. Says this. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters. And it goes on. Now, these pagan gods were all like that, weren't they? You know, little gods running around, some with goat's feet and horns and strange things and whatever. So the pagans had done that. They'd created these strange gods instead of the living God. And then look at verse, um, verse 26. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire? So there we go. That's OK. See you later. Thanks very much. I'm, fine. I'm finishing up now. Yeah. Night shift. Got to go. Thanks so much, Fade. Lovely to see you. Night shift. She's just starting her day. Wowzers. What a way to start your day. <laughs> Lovely to see you anyway. Thank you for coming. Right. So finally, um, they turned from idols. Now we might think, well, Matt, you know, we don't have idols floating around and we're not in that kind of thing. So how does this really appeal and apply to us? Well, I'm sure you all know, but let's go back to Colossians because in Colossians, we have a principle that we must bear in mind, I think, young people, because the idea of the, the idols, were the, they were the imagination of men's own fleshly desires, I will suggest to you. It weren't like religion as, 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 you know, as, as we would understand it. Daniel, could you read Colossians 3 verse 5 for us, please? Yeah. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affect, affection, evil con, con, concupiscence, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right. So he's basically saying that these things, particularly covetous, are idolatry, right? So these are all the things of the flesh. And we're to mortify them. So we're in a covetous society. Everyone wants the latest iPhone, the latest pair of trainers, the latest stuff. And as you get older, the latest car and the latest laptop and the latest house and all this stuff. It's, it's meaningless because tomorrow you could just die and you can't take any of it with you. Right. So why worship? Why become a slave to all that stuff? Now, obviously, I don't think there's anything wrong with wealth per se, but it's if you love it, it's the love of money that's the problem. It's the desire of chasing after that side of things, that the neglect of the things of God. That is when idolatry comes about, when those things become our main focus. They take away from the things of God. So these people had turned from that, and we'll just go back to Thessalonians, and we will wind up now. They turned from those things. They turned from that false way of life, and they'd accepted the truth in a lot of tribulation, in a lot of trial, 
and you know how thankful the apostle Paul was for them and he remembers them in his prayers and he thanks God and he's inspired to write this record that they were their fame had gone out all through the ecclesias everyone was so thrilled that they they turned from these idols and they committed to God and it says there that they committed to God verse 10 and to and were waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come and so we too are so thankful we too are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven we're now 2,000 years on he's just at the door and so we also need to take up the spirit of the Thessalonians I would suggest be inspired by them to 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 have this work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope as we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ so let's bear that in mind as we go on until our next class in a couple of weeks.